Brewers Publications, aka BP, is the largest publisher of contemporary brewing literature for today's craft brewers, home brewers, and beer enthusiasts. With over 50 titles to choose from, there's a beer book to fill most needs. Whether you're just discovering beer or are a seasoned professional, BP is the go-to choice for brewers looking to expand their knowledge and hone their craft. Check out the complete BP catalog at brewerspublications.com. Experimental Brewing's Brew Files, our quick hit web series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. On this episode, we're giving Denny the week off and covering one of my favorite styles, a true American classic, the American Cream Ale. I strongly feel that this near-forgotten style is not only one of the few completely American originals, and no, adding a crap ton of hops doesn't mean originality, but it's a great style to make during the winter season, because it's less temperature stringent than its close cousins, you know, the American light lagers, but it's also, well, it benefits from the cold, unlike, say, a nail. So if you've ever wanted to brew a beer that's classic, flavorful, and crushable, you got to give American Cream Ale a try. Now, for me, this is a straight throwback to college. I uh, used to hang out with friends, and Cream Ale was really the thing that we had when uh, we could afford to have actual decent beer, but not have enough money to have you know craft beer, which was nascent in its time when I was in college. But I remember there was one road trip I took with my good friend Ian, and we went up to uh, his parents' place in Vermont, and we were hanging out with his family and. His family decided to treat us college frat boys like, yeah, well, to good old time. And as we walked into their house, right there in the middle of the kitchen floor was a pony keg of Genesee cream ale, which is still to this day one of my favorites. And we'll talk more about that later. But all weekend, we sat down and, you know, oh, hey, I want a beer. Ran off into the kitchen and poured ourselves a nice tall glass of cream ale. And I swear, that was a... That was a glorious weekend. So yeah, this is a straight nostalgia trip for me. So for today's episode, I'm going to walk you through a couple of things. One, the history of the style, particularly how it relates to American Light Lager, how it came about. I'm going to talk a little bit about what the heck the beer should taste like. And then uh, we're going to walk through exactly how you go about making one of these if you wanted to make one for yourself. And we'll close off with my recipe for my classic American cream ale, which is, of course, being a home brewer, a slightly stronger version of the style. Welcome to the history section of the show, ladies and gentlemen. I've put on my tweed jacket, leather patches, pipes over there in the corner, and I got a beer at hand. And what do you know? It's a Genesee Cream Ale. Go figure. All right, so let's talk the history of the style. Now, lager beer didn't hit the U.S. until the 1840s. It had already been developed in Germany. You know, they had nice cold caves and a long technology. It was kind of actually a top secret thing of the Bavarian state of how to make these beers. But 
1840, generally the credit's given to John Wagner in Philadelphia uh, for brewing the first lager beer here in America. Apparently he had a small brewery attached to his house, and that's where he did. Uh, He had been a Bavarian brewer who immigrated to the U.S., and part of his little sneaky endeavor for making the beer over here was that he brought the yeast with him, and that was the key. We know that's the key. Uh, But this was at a time, like I said, it was sort of a state secret, and this could have gotten him into a lot of trouble. We see loggers first here in the 1840s, and that is coincident with the time that we start to see the real rise in German and Austrian immigration into the U.S. So lager beer proves rapidly popular because, again, you have a large group of immigrants who are coming into the country for whom this is what they expect when they say they want beer. So this is a taste of home. Kind of caught most of the rest of America flat-footed, our ale breweries at the time. To give you an idea how fast this spread, so 1840, we have the first one in Philadelphia. By 1847, we see lager breweries already in Chicago. We even had monks in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, not making Rolling Rock, but they were a a sect of uh, Benedictine monks uh, who had come over from Bavaria and had founded the St. Vincent Abbey uh, just outside of Latrobe. And they brewed for years. I think they were brewing until uh, the 1900s, but they literally had to get dispensation from the Pope to be able to make the beer first and then to sell the beer. And it kind of went back and forth a couple of times based on whoever was Pope at the time as to whether or not they could sell beer. But all the Aylburys in the U.S. were caught flat-footed by this. And it's also funny that the other American style that I think of as an original comes out of the same thing. So basically, Aylburys were caught flat-footed by the rise of lagers. Um, this very, very rapid rise, brand new market, brand new style of beer. And they couldn't really retool the breweries because in order to make lager beers, it was a different set of technologies. It was a different set of, you know, sort of skill sets and process. And they didn't have the lagering caves that in pre-refrigeration days were important to the style. So instead of trying to retool into this new style, what they decided to do was, well, can we emulate the general profile of the beer? So remember, these guys are making, at this time, it was still porter and pale ale were the most popular things in the U.S. for beer. Remember, a lot of the U.S. was actually still really drinking cider and whiskey by the, by the gallon. They decided, okay, we're going to do an emulation, and we're going to make a light beer, but we're going to do this with ale techniques. Now, by the way, this still plays out today. Think about, until recently, when you start to see the rise of craft lagers like Firestone Walker's 805, uh, Full Sail Session, these things are starting to hit the market in a real way. Victory is probably the largest, is Victory the largest? I think Victory is the largest craft brewery that does a lot of lagers. But until then, you see a lot of American craft breweries trying to play it the game of, hey, I'm going to make a light blonde beer that everybody will drink. The idea was, okay, I'm going to make a blonde or a Kolsch if you want to sound fancy, but I want to have a pale, fizzy beer that I can target my Bud Light drinkers who come into my brew pub, uh, and they can have that and everybody's happy. Except for nobody's really ever happy. But the same idea was going on with the ale breweries in the 1840s, 1850s. They basically began to market a style, and you'll see it called cream ale. Uh, Sometimes you'll also see it called sparkling ale or lively ale. And this is all very, very, very associated with upstate New York and the Ohio region. And I think that's largely because that's where the two breweries that are known for this style still exist today. There's a really fantastic book that was put out by the uh, Western Brewer, which was a a guidebook uh, to the industry 
1903, and it's called A Hundred Years of Brewing. And it's been republished a couple of times, and I have a copy of it. It's stupidly expensive, but it's a really, really cool book to go look through to see sort of the history of American brewing as being written in 1903 after that first hundred years where you start to see the not only the ale breweries at the time, but also the rise of the German breweries and to see like when you actually start to see the first mentions of Adolphus Busch and Pabst and Schlitz and all these names that we now know all associated with lager beer. But what it comes down to is cream ale is a sort of Hail Mary pass by these ale breweries to keep everything, you know, moving, keep uh, product flowing, uh, sell into this new market. I think we know how this went. Now, there's a lot of speculation for why did lager hit so popularly here. And I like the discussions I've seen that have rotated around comparisons between us and Australia. We're both fairly dry climates. They're also fairly hot. And lager beers rose up very, very well, despite the fact that a good portion of the population was from an ale background. Now, cream ale wasn't only just an innovation in terms of, hey, we're trying to do something new with our breweries. It was an innovation because cream ale was also America's first canned beer. Kruger's Cream Ale in 1935. Kruger's got approached by a canning manufacturer. I think it was Ball. Uh, they got approached by a canning manufacturer and said, hey, we think this will be perfect for beer. And Kruger's was worried enough about the packaging. They were intrigued, but they were worried enough about the packaging and its impact on its reputation. If you think glass bottle snobs and draft beer snobs are bad today, remember, this is a whole new thing where people had never seen cans used for this purpose. Uh, so they were really worried about it. And the canning manufacturer said, here, look, this is what we'll do. We will install a canning line into your brewery. We will give you the cans for free. If you decide that you don't want to proceed or you put the beer out there and you decide, nope, nope, not doing it anymore, we will uninstall the canning line and all of it will be at no cost to you. That sounds like a good business proposition, low risk, but in order to even further mitigate the risk. Now, remember, Kruger's was located in Newark, New Jersey, and they were just concerned enough about it that they actually test marketed it in Virginia. They shipped the beer to a state that they had never been in before, just so that if the package wasn't well-received, if people went, oh, no, this is terrible, it wouldn't affect their brand in their home market. So it turned out to be very popular. You can obviously tell uh, it's now even popular in the craft brew world, which is awesome in a great many ways. But here's one of the ones that blows my mind. If you go and you find an actual old Kruger can, particularly one of the Kruger cream ale cans, doesn't even have to be in that original run, right? You know, the one that they did in 1935 to, uh, to Virginia. Those Kruger cans, empty, sell for anywhere between 100 to nearly $2,000, depending upon the vintage, the style of the can, uh, what year it's from, uh, what brand was in it. So, yeah, I mean, you're going anywhere from $100 on the minimum that I saw all the way to nearly $2,000 which blows my mind for an old beverage container. All right, so now that's enough of the history. We know that we got here because loggers rose up and started to eat everybody's shorts, and brewers, being businessmen, knew they needed to find a way to respond. So that's how we get American cream ale. All right, we are now in the taste portion of the show. We've talked the history 
what the heck does this thing taste like? Well, it really depends. Because in a great many ways, American cream ale is best thought of as the fruitier, slightly heavier cousin to the American standard lager. So take your Budweiser's, your Schlitz, your Coors, your whatever, and have that. Now, make it just slightly sweeter and slightly denser on the palate with maybe a more sort of hop character. And that's what American cream ale really is. It's still crisp. It's still really, really drinkable, but it is slightly sweeter. And that's because, of course, they, you have the whole thing about lager yeast being able to take out uh, various sugars that most ale yeast aren't very good at. The primary one being raffinose. It's a longer chain sugar. When I first started to learn how to brew, that was the, the mantra. You know, lagers, lager yeast will consume raffinose. Ale yeast can't. And, of course, as with all things with increased exploration, that seems to be less and less a sure thing. But really what we get is just like what we see in lagers, there are the modern takes on it, and then there are the pre-prohibition takes. And remember, pre-prohibition, whenever you hear it, that almost always means that the beers were stronger and hoppier and really had more flavor and were the things that you and I, dear home brewer and craft brewer aficionado, would probably prefer to drink. And the ingredients are largely the same as what you find in a pre-pro lager. Pale malt, oftentimes a mix of two-row and six-row. Particularly in the pre-prohibition uh, versions, you'll see more six-row. Now, what's the difference between two-row and six-row? It's really the number of kernels growing on a barley stalk. Two-row obviously has two rows of those kernels. They're fatter, they're plumper, they tend to have less protein. They have less husk material in comparison to the amount of starch that they have. They come off cleaner and crisper. Six-row has more kernels jammed onto a single stalk, which means that the kernels themselves aren't as fat and plump. And they also have more husk to endosperm than the, the two-row does. Now, interestingly also, six-row has more protein and more enzymatic action. And we'll get into why this is important next. So the other thing that you'll find in American cream mills, both pre and pro, is corn, maize. We know it's in in all of our lagers, or sometimes rice, and it has a bad reputation. A lot of people will complain that, oh, you know, the corn, the rice, they're in there because of the penny pinchers, the bean counters. They want to make sure that the beer can be as cheap as it can be and ruin a good thing brewing-wise. Well, let's walk back on that for a second. Why did all of these German and Austrian brewers, men who you think would have the utmost full-time respect for beer, fully inculcated in the Reinhardtsgebot, why would they add corn or rice to their beer? It goes back to that six-row question. See, if you even you look back at American ale brewers in this period of time and further back, you'll see that they used a lot of adjuncts, and it wasn't just because they were cheaper, they were sometimes, but it was also because until you get into the late 1870s, 1880s, American barley malt it's kind of crap. It's all six row. It's all harsh. It's proteinaceous. It throws a haze. It's just mean and bitter on the tongue. It's not, it doesn't make for a very pleasant beer. And if you were a brewer who wanted to have good beer ingredients, then you had a choice. I either use the domestic stuff or I figure out a way to get imported stuff over here for relatively cheap. 
oh, hey, I can't do that. So I guess I got to use the domestic stuff. And it turns out that adding adjuncts like corn and rice not only made up for the lower amount of American barley that was being grown back in those days, but also the lower quality. Because both corn and rice don't contain protein. They help deal with the haze issue. The way they ferment and the way they taste lends a little bit of sweetness, which helps with the harshness uh, that you get from the husk and the, the barley itself. And they're perfect partners because the American six row has a lot of enzymatic power, which means that you could use a fair amount of corn and rice in your beer and have it convert from starch into sugar. This is the reason why those adjuncts first got used, because this was how you took American crap barley and turned it into something approximating a German-style lager. Now, the American cream ale brewers picked up the same technique because, well, for the same reasons. They really did follow in that, in that guideline, in that vein. And also on the cheapness of the ingredients, by the way, I will say that at least until relatively recently, Anheuser-Busch, Budweiser, who I think you guys know I am not a fan of their product, People always complain, oh, the rice is in there because the rice is cheap. Well, except for for Budweiser, the most expensive ingredient in Budweiser, as I've been told repeatedly from people who work for them, was the rice because it's a special variety of golden rice grown down in Louisiana. And for the longest time, Budweiser was very, 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 very picky about what rice went into the beer. There you go. It wasn't the cheapest thing. All right, let's look at what your choices are about corn. The easiest ones are flaked maize and corn syrup. Don't get a corn syrup like Cairo that's got uh, vanilla in it. Flaked maize is super easy to use. Go right into the into the mash. No special things needed to do. And the reason that's so easy to use is because when they actually go and make the corn flakes, which is what they are, they actually steam them and then press them between two hot rollers and flatten those out. Now, what the steaming does is it heats the, the corn up. There's a thing about starches in most grasses and cereals that we, that we use. They have a thing called a gelatinization temperature. And I know I just said that wrong, but whatever. I can never say the word. Basically, starch in a grain is not just running around free. You know, it's not like you crack open a, a wheat germ and suddenly you have flour. The starch is actually locked up in, into a sort of a crystalline matrix. And it's not available for the enzymes to act on it and convert it from starch into sugar. So these cereal grains that we use all have a thing that we call a gelatization temperature. And that's basically when enough water and heat is applied to the grain, those starch matrices explode effectively. And the starches unfurl and they become available for enzymes to act on. Now, we are brewers, so we primarily are dealing with barley malt. And it turns out that most of our popular adjuncts that we use like wheat, oats, and rye, all have gelatization temperatures below that of barley malt. So their starches are exposed just by going into a barley mash that's already hot enough to do that. Corn and rice, on the other hand, aren't. You have to bring them almost to a boil. I think, uh, and I'm not going to look up the numbers now, but I think their gelatization temperatures are in like the 180s and 190s. If you're not using flaked corn, or corn syrup, which has already been converted, you have to break those starch matrices up. And the way that we do that is a very traditional uh, methodology called the American cereal mash, and sometimes American double cooker mash, a couple of different terms for it, but it's all the same thing. Basically, you're making grits, or you're making rice porridge. You take your 
rice or your corn, you crack it. Uh, we actually, when I do a, a rice lager, I got taught in my club to run it through an old Corona mill and crack up the kernels or the grains of rice into a finer thing. Mix that with hot water, bring it up to a boil, stir, 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 stir. Keep it at a boil for like 15 minutes and the whole time you're stirring. And it doesn't matter if it's rice or corn. The big thing about it is it's a thick porridge that bubbles fiercely and if it gets on you, will burn. So you have to be really, really careful with this stuff. The idea is that once you do that, you cool it back down, you get it back down to about mash temperatures, about the 150s with some cold water. And it kind of tightens up and seizes into this you know, gooey mass and you add some uh, barley malt to it. And the second, this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen with brewing. You add the barley malt and the second you start to stir it in, suddenly this sort of thick porridge just collapses back into a liquidy mass. It's very cool. I don't quite understand the science behind it, but it's there. You let that sit for a little while. You let the enzymes in the barley malt start to act on the starch. Then you pull that up you heat, it, you heat it up, you bring it back up to a boil, stirring the whole time again, and it's still super dangerous. And then once you get it up to a boil, you go and you add it back into your main mash where all your other barley malt is sitting. It's effectively sort of an offset decoction, but it's a decoction with a purpose, which is to break open the starch in the, in the corn or the rice, and then to heat up the mash and bring that up to a full sacrification temperature. So it's decoction slash infusion, but for a practical reason that isn't just a matter of taste. So those are the three main ways of using corn, but it's not the only way. One of my favorites was I, first time I ever brewed a cream ale was a brewing session that I did with my friends, Bruce Brode and Brian Vessa. You would have heard Bruce back in episode 14 of the Experimental Brewing Podcast, Season of the Bruce. Those guys are absolutely nuts and they wanted to make a cream ale for one of their parties. And instead of using flaked corn or corn syrup or doing the whole double cooker thing, they actually just went and used kick cereal. Big bags of corn puff cereal. And you know what? It worked like a charm. I'm not entirely certain if it's subjective or just me being weird, but I could have sworn I could have tasted the kicks in the final beer. But it was a completely viable thing. We took these big bags of kick cereal, dumped it into the mash tun and watched them dissolve into like nothingness, like the second they hit the water. So it was really cool. All right, and on hops, hops are the classical noble varieties. You'll see sometimes people going highbrow and actually getting German hops into the mix. I tend to avoid that because I, I don't know I've been burned too many times with a lot of the German hops that we get, like particularly of the you know Hallertau middle fruit types, because frankly we get the end of the crop. We we get the stuff that none of the European breweries want, none of the American breweries want, and we're kind of left holding the bag. Not to mention how's it been stored and how's it been shipped to you. So I tend to avoid German nobles. I do tend to use domestic nobles. Also a little bit of cluster for tradition's sake. Cluster was the American hop back in the day. If you find wild hops growing somewhere, particularly if you're in upstate New York, chances are they're probably clustered. That was the original hop. If you read any of the old brewing logs that like Ron Pattinson's dug up from uh, England or the ones that uh, Peter Simons pulled up out of Australia, you'll hear them talk about using California hops. Those are going to be clusters. So they were also sometimes California cluster. So a little bit of a uh, cluster with its trademark blackberry cat piss taste is very, very traditional in this. But I do tend to use a mix of domestic style nobles. So Willamette, Mount Hood, Sterling, those kinds, uh, along with my usual sort of magnum bittering dose. Also, very important, it's a light dosing of hops. Not quite as light as, say, an American uh, light lager or American standard lager, 
but you're still only looking at 12 to 20 IBUs, which is, for most of us as homebrewers, a really hard thing to picture. I always look at people's recipes and they're still calling for like an ounce of hops, even in something that's this lightly hopped. And that's just sort of banana pants. So this is a very, very low amount of hops. Uh, Yeast. Now, despite the ale part of it being in the name, many of these are actually fermented with lager strains at a warmer temperature. One I've used a lot, Y-Yeast 2035. And the Cala Ale Complex actually works pretty well. And all, no matter what you're using, you're still going to be in a fermentation range of about 55 to 60 degrees. If you're using a lager yeast, that allows it to go a little bit warmer and fruitier. If you're using an ale yeast, it kind of allows it to be a little less fruity. Water, I always go for a softer water profile for this. I don't necessarily want to accentuate the hops. And I don't think of it as being a mineral-defined style. So I would tend to more chloride just to boost a little bit of sweetness from the corn. But that's really sort of a personal preference. This is one that you can almost go with just a flat, neutral uh, water style on. But ultimately, here's what you end up with. You end up with a beer that has an OG somewhere in the 1042 to 1055 range. IBUs tend to run from 8 on the low, low side uh, up to 20. Color somewhere between 2 to 5 SRM. And you end up with something that's between 4 to 5.5% ABV. Now, that's for the kind of the current commercial uh, version of the style, which you'll see really in two primary examples. One of those being Genesee Cream Ale, the aforementioned beloved Jenny out of Rochester, New York. Probably, I would argue, the most famous thing to come out of Rochester, New York after the garbage plate. The other ones that you'll see that is also super uh, classic and usually comes in little tiny bottles is Little Kings out of Cincinnati. Both of those are really awesome, but I have been known to drink more Genesee Cream Ale than I probably should admit to. If you're looking for a craft take on it, it's kind of hard to find a lot of craft takes on it, but two that I know right off the top of my head, uh, New Glare Spotted Cow. So if you're up in that upper Midwest area, New Glare Spotted Cow is really a cream ale. And then the other one uh, down down here in Southern California, why, is Mother Earth's Cali Creaming Cream Ale. I hate the name, but this one has uh, vanilla added to it because, of course, they're playing off the cream notation. A little too much for my taste, but I actually think it's kind of a nice thing if, they, if it's pulled back a little bit and made a little more subtle. It plays perfectly in with that sweetness. All right, and now it's time for a recipe. That's right. I'm going to challenge you guys to go and make this because I'm making, this is a sort of a pre-pro version. So it's going to be slightly stronger and slightly hoppier. Dead simple because you know me, I'm a lazy brewer. So here you go. For five and a half gallons at 1055, 20 IBUs, 3.5 SRM and 5.7 ABV, you're going to need nine pounds of domestic pale malt. You can either make it all six row or all two row or blend thereof. A lot of times, if I'm not going to make it to the shop, I'll just use all two row because I have it handy laying in the garage. And then you have two and a half pounds of flaked maize. I like to use the corn. I don't necessarily have to feel all manly and uh, go for battle scars from corn uh, goo. I already have scars from rice goo getting on me, so I don't need any more. Scars may be sexy, but mm, not this case. All right, and then for hops, real simple, quarter ounce of magnum for 60 minutes. That's where... All your bitterness is coming from one ounce of Willamette for 15 minutes. And then the yeast, take your pick. Why yeast 2035 American lager, Cal, uh, any of the Cal Ale complex, which is like uh, 001, 1056 or USO5. 
And then the, the last one, the one that I actually used with Bruce and Brian uh, during that whole Kicks episode, was Cooper's Sparkling Ale Yeast. Let that ferment for two weeks at between 55 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Watch that krausen come up. When the krausen starts to drop, I like to cold crash. I go straight into, you know, from 55 down to 40, and then from there to just above freezing. And let it sit for about another two weeks, keg and enjoy. I know, it's an old school lager fermentation schedule. What do you want? This is the one I've done. I will tell you right now, if you do this, and you do this over the winter here while it's nice and cool, you will be able to come springtime when the lawn suddenly springs back up and demands lawn mowing to have a respectable lawnmower ale with actual American roots to it. And you're going to dig it, you're going to love it, and your friends are going to love it, and you'll probably be asked to make it again for all those summer barbecues. So, that's it. This is the easiest thing I can think to do where you want to do something kind of like a lager, but something with some respect to it. If you want it to be hoppier, go for it. Go for go for hoppiness. I don't care. I tend to think this is best served at a relatively low IBU level. And again, 20 IBUs in comparison to any of the other cream ales out there, that's a respectable amount of hops. But I really do encourage you guys to give this one a try. If you do, Send me a message, send us a message up on Facebook, send it into the podcast, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Let us know. Did you try it? What did you think? Also, since this is a brand new show, send us your feedback at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. We intend for this to come out uh, hopefully every other week from the main show. Keep us to task on that and give us your ideas. If you just let me or Denny come up with ideas, you're just going to get our takes on things. What do you want us to cover that's brewing related, brew style related, whatever. And hey, don't forget, leave us a review on iTunes, share this out to your friends on social media, help uh, help us out, because you help us out, we can keep doing the shows, uh, and if you talk to one of our sponsors, please make sure that you mention that you came to them via us. It helps them know that their advertising dollars are well spent. And hey, just because this is another podcast doesn't mean we're not still doing the Patreon thing. If you want to support the podcast, if you want to support our charity, Go to Experimental Brew on Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash experimentalbrew. Throw us a buck. Throw us whatever you want. But please, help us out. Help keep the show rolling. And definitely give us feedback on this brand new uh, style of show that we're doing. We hope that you enjoyed it. And until next time, keep brewing. Keep brewing.